Thank you. It's a real privilege to be with you again. And I want to tell you that this is a moment of uh, great sacrifice for me because my team Hawthorne are about to take the field uh, in Melbourne and I'm not there to support them. I believe that by faith I'm worth at least two goals to that team. So it's a significant sacrifice for me. But Lord, um, your, pe your people... Well, my, it's okay, I've got my iPhone up here. I can, I can see it quite well. Thank you, it's very nice of you to do that. One of the toughest times Helen and I have ever been through in our lives was a time when our youngest son was uh, 13 years old. He got caught up smoking marijuana. Some of the local kids introduced him to that. It captured his life and for the next four years we were in trouble. Um, he was expelled from three schools in three years and one day packed his bags at the age of 15 and left home. Um, the next two years all we could do is love him when he came for a meal and pray with him and pray for him two years later Rodney Howard Brown came to Melbourne and was conducting meetings in the Melbourne Entertainment Centre and they were just extraordinary meetings and I rang him up my daughter was one of the platform worship leaders so I rang him up I said Sammy you've got to come and see this son it's just extraordinary and so he came 15 minutes into the worship, he had tears running down his face and he came and sat with us right on the front row of the Melbourne Entertainment Centre, 6,000 people there. And at one point that day, Rodney wanted to pray for the ministers and the front 10 rows were all pastors and they were all gone and so the front 10 rows were empty and here's one little teenage boy sitting all by himself, 10 empty rows around him and one of the visiting ministry from the United States spotted him on the front row and went down and sat with him and had a long conversation with him and then prayed for him and Sammy spent an hour and a half on the carpet and then later on in the, next, in the following days just began to move his stuff home and I woke up one morning and my boy was back in his bedroom and our crisis had survived. Now he's uh, a married man with four of his own children discovering that uh, children are God's ways of uh, rewarding you for what you did to your parents. He got four lovely kids. But I could not tell you how grateful I was that there was a visiting ministry who'd spot my boy and take time to go spend a little time with him. And I, I, I never had the opportunity to thank him for that moment. I was surprised to hear some years later that the man, that, that man who ble so blessed our family was no longer in ministry. And I had no idea what the backstory to that might be until a few years ago, um, an article appeared in the Charisma magazine. And I won't mention his name because that's not the point. Uh, but he was a man who profoundly touched my children's life. We, we, we're grateful. And yet there was a season of his life where he was knocked right out of ministry. And this is what the article in Charisma says. After the tragic death of his daughter, um, so his name, um, this minister's world spiraled down into the darkest place you could imagine. The co-founder of Without Walls International Church turned his back on God for not healing his daughter of a brain tumour as well as other life crises. He became addicted to prescription drugs and eventually attempted suicide. From the bottom, he had nowhere else to look but heavenward. He sought professional help and finally pulled himself out of his spiritual depression by the grace of God. He is now returning as bishop uh, and is sharing his testimony in a book titled Only God Knows Why. He's also sharing his personal testimony of God's restoration at the church's 21 anniversary homecoming celebration. I'm so thrilled to be back, uh, he said. 
God has done a wonderful work in my life. He is the God of restoration. I believe in this church and I know that God's hands upon this great church. What happened to him? He had a complaint against God. He had a complaint that he didn't know how to resolve. He felt like God had let him down. And it so damaged his emotions, it so damaged his heart that for a period of time, um, he was suicidal. He was willing to kill himself, take his life to end the crisis. I want to talk to you tonight about complaints against God. Because the reality is this. It is not possible to do a lifetime journey with Jesus without at some point feeling like you have a complaint. And you have to learn how to resolve them. Because if you don't, it'll eat your lunch. Um, Not long after I read this article, a movie came through Melbourne called Billy, The Early Years. It was a uh, film about Billy Graham and his early years of relationship with a man called Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton, during the 1930s, was an alcoholic and and a very immoral man. But he had a profound conversion experience and as a result he became a preacher. And during the 1940s, he and Billy Graham shared the pulpit together. Um, Charles Templeton developed a complaint against God. His complaint began with the theory of evolution. Evolution began to erode his confidence that you could actually believe the Bible. And then he says it was just a, it was a photograph on the front page of the Time magazine that crystallized his complaint. And it was, the, it was a woman holding in her arms a dying child in an Ethiopian famine. And he said, I was so angry at God. I was so angry. All that woman needed was rain. And who can make rain if you can't make rain? And he said, it, it, it just so got under his skin. He, it, it was the turning point for his life. And Templeton not only withdrew from preaching, he became an active atheist and wrote many books against the faith. In one of those books called Farewell to God, he talks about a conversation he had with Billy Graham because Billy and he were close friends. And when Templeton was going through this crisis, he was profoundly influencing Billy Graham at that early point in his ministry. And Billy Graham will talk about a particular night in which he spent the whole night in prayer working his way through this troubling question can i really believe god can i really trust god templeton refers to a conversation he had with billy graham in one of these books he wrote he says this all our differences came to a head in a discussion which better than anything i know explains billy graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist in the course of our conversation i said but billy it's simply not possible any longer to believe for instance the biblical account of creation The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It's evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And by the way, neither do I. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Well, who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Well, most of them, yes. He said, but that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. And I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word but Billy I protested you can't do that 
You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. Well, I don't know about anybody else, Billy said, but I've decided that's the path for me. I'm not sure that Billy actually committed intellectual suicide. I think Charles did. In fact, one of the sad things, if you want to read a very sad account, um, read Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Faith. Because in the very first chapter, he visits Charles Templeton, now as an old man and dying of Alzheimer's. And in his discussion, he went because he said, I'm going to write a book on faith. I need to talk to someone who lost theirs. Why did you lose faith? And he told him about that moment where he saw that picture on the front of Time magazine. During the course of his discussion, Lee Strobel asked Charles Templeton a question. He said, tell me, what do you think about Jesus? He said, at that point, he began to cry. And he said, I miss him. I miss him. Charles, I'll bet you do. Because you met him when you were an alcoholic and visiting prostitutes, Jesus visited you. And in the powerful encounter with his love, he changed your heart. And in changing your heart, he gave you a love for people and a deep desire to lead them closer to God. And you were doing so well until a complaint poisoned you. Charles developed a complaint against God and he didn't know how to resolve it. And as a result, he became a rabid atheist. Billy Graham prayed his way through that crisis and he made a decision. See, some people ask me, Al, why do you believe the Bible? Well, listen, if this is a Bible college class, I've got 40 reasons for it. But I'll bring it down to one. The reason I believe the Bible is because Jesus believed the Bible. And I've come to the conclusion, if Jesus doesn't know, then nobody knows. Jesus was the only one who not only could know the intent of the Bible, he actually wrote the Bible. He was the Word made flesh. And Jesus took the Bible at the core of his heart and believed it. One issue after another, Jesus would say, have you not read? The reason he said you're wrong because you know neither the power of God uh, nor the Word. You don't know either of those. The Scriptures are the power of God. I believe the Bible's true for a very important reason, because Jesus did. And as a result, I need to learn how to deal with my complaints, because I don't want to become an atheist. I don't want to lose what God has given me. And the reality is this. If you don't learn how to uh, defuse your complaints against God, it will eat your lunch. It's an interesting thing. I come to church, you're going to talk about complaints against God. What an unedifying idea, Al. Well, it's interesting, God doesn't mind us discussing this because there are many books in the Bible that are just open complaints against God. The whole book of Job is an extended complaint against God with one guy crying out, it's not fair. Um, the book of Habakkuk is a prophet's complaint against God. Don't you know how to run your own kingdom is basically his complaint. You don't seem to know how to manage your kingdom. This week I was doing a, a, um, a devotion on Psalm 89, which is an extended complaint against God. But tonight I want to talk to you from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a psalm of complaint. It's very important that you tonight get a handle on this issue. Because if you don't need this message tonight, you will one day. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. 
I had nearly lost my foothold. We're living in a very post-Christian culture, you and I, both Australia and New Zealand. We, in our sophistication, have got beyond trusting in the Bible, trusting in God, listening to the voice of Jesus. We've become very sophisticated. The reality is to maintain a strong faith in God, you need to know some things in a world like ours. One of them is how to handle your complaints. It is a problem for everyone who wants to follow Jesus for a lifetime. Um, It is a chief plank in the attack of militant atheism on Christianity today. And it appears in many, many books. It's a common theme in movies. If you want to see an example of a film that kind of works a complaint against God, and I could give you many examples, try Liam Neeson in the film The Grey. Now, The Grey is a, an action movie about a, a, a guy who um, shoots wolves in the Alaskan wilderness. A plane crashes and a group of men are trying to trek their way across the wilderness to safety and they're being hunted by a pack of wolves. But every time they sit down around a campfire, they discuss theology. Does heaven listen? Does anybody care about our situation? If we bother to pray, will anybody be listening to that? It's the theme that goes right through the movie. And the movie basically, I think, leaves you with the feeling that it's pretty much up to yourself. You're on your own. Just make the most, make the most out of life because there's no help from heaven. Well, in this particular psalm, this writer is prepared to tell you, I nearly lost my faith. Well, what's your problem, mate? What is your complaint? Well, he says it in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, what's your problem, you say, puss? How can a moral God stand by and watch immoral people prosper? How can a moral God in a moral universe stand back and let immoral people prosper and often let highly moral people struggle. I mean, if you want to build a casino in Australia, there'll be billions of dollars made available for you. But you try to run an orphanage in India or Pakistan or get together some money to help people in Thailand and you'll be struggling to get an offering together that'll buy a tram ticket. Why is it so easy for evil to prosper and so challenging and difficult for righteousness to press forward and prevail? And this man's honest enough to say, well, it nearly knocked me out of the race. He said, I, uh, my feet had almost slipped. How can a moral God allow immoral people to prosper? Let me ask you a question. What's yours? What's yours? What's your complaint? See, often we don't, even like to think about it because we're not supposed to have complaints we're supposed to be full of faith radiant trusting God in every circumstance not supposed to have complaints no we're just supposed to have an amazing radiant testimony so what we often do is when we have a complaint we never want to think it through Um, we're afraid that there may not be a resolution and we're afraid we're afraid we won't know what to do with it And so it's better to kind of just pull the rug over the thing and try not to think about it but it's like burrs under a saddle it, it works its way through. It, it, the pain of it works its way through into your consciousness. And just trying to pretend you haven't got a complaint is no way of resolving it. And the reality is that if you have a complaint 
and you've never articulated it, it may well become a poison in your soul that just sucks the life out of your commitment and your confidence and and your action for God. Watch what it did to this guy. See, this then permeated his way of thinking. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Well, that's amazing. I didn't know the mafia were doing that well. So imagine that. Imagine, just be a member of the mafia and you won't have any struggles. Healthy body, oh, no one gets sick if they're in the mafia. No, no. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. I get a grip, mate. You see, when you get a complaint against God, it begins to, it becomes like a pair of yellow glasses. You see everything in the jaundiced way. You don't, you don't see life as it really is. And it begins to permeate your whole view of life. Uh, you begin to interpret experiences through your complaint, and it's not helpful. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Well, that can be true. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. So there can be a truth in that. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. They're big talkers. And boy, has that ever been the case in recent years as, as atheism has taken on a much more aggressive stance over the past decade than it ever took on during the 70s, 80s and 90s when your country and mine was experiencing something like the charismatic move. And Christianity was often quite a lot more aggressive in those days, a lot more bold to just stand up in a public platform or public square and just proclaim itself. And now there's quite different voices that like to proclaim themselves and take control of the public airways. Therefore, people turn to them. In other words, they influence people and they drink up waters in abundance. They swallow anything they have to say. If there's anything, oh, don't get, oh, we've got 30 minutes. So I don't, don't get a chance to tell you everything that I'd love to say about this kind of thing. But often as I'm watching the news and I, I watch the way in which a certain way of thinking about science and a certain way of thinking uh, about human problems just permeates the news and I find myself yelling at the TV set, that's not true, that isn't true. Um, well, I don't have the microphone, they do. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? See, one of the challenges we have, it's easier to be a Baptist than it is to be a Pentecostal. I was a Lutheran. I was raised a Lutheran. We never expected to see God do anything in our lives. We believed that he'd done something on the cross. We believed in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. We never expected anything between then and now, until Jesus comes. We just thought we tough it out till Jesus comes. It's a much easier way to do life because when people get sick, no one believed in healing. You just, you take what you get. You say, okay, we'll tough it out, step up a little, be bold and courageous, and one day the resurrection of the dead. It becomes tougher when you become a charismatic or a Pentecostal. And you begin to believe that God can do anything. And then you write songs about, you know, he'll never, he's never going to let me down. Hey, never going to let me down. Oh, no, never, never going to let me down. Well, you sing that 500 times and then run into a complaint against God and you've got problems because now you have a faith that tells you God can do anything, that God is able. Not only that, a theology that suggests he wants to do a whole bunch of stuff and it's just not happening in the way that you hoped and expected that it just might. 
Now you're in serious trouble. It's easier to be a Lutheran. It's easier to be a Baptist. Believe in the resurrection. And if you're a Baptist here today, God bless you, please do not throw. Don't send me emails. I mean, I'm not. You get the point. Because once you get into this experience of believing that God is able and that God is mighty and that God is good, now you're facing a crisis because it doesn't always turn out the way your expectations would have suggested to you that if all you say is true, really is true, it would turn out a little differently than this. The reality, however, is that God in his wisdom allows many things that his power could easily prevent. Swallow that one. God in his wisdom allows many things that his power could easily prevent. God can make earthquakes. Can he stop them? Yeah, sure. And as a result, in our humanity, you are going to run into a complaint with God at some point. Because the problem is we are working with different agendas. The problem that we face when we're relating to God is he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Any idiot can open, cut open an apple and count the number of seeds. Anyone can do that. But only God can look into a seed and, and see the number of apples. He's the only one who can do it that way. And God sees the end from the beginning. And as a result, in his wisdom, there are many things he will not do, even though you may plead and be angry and tell him he needs to get it done. Because you alone are looking for a seed and he's looking for apples. He has a determination um, to share with you his holiness. See, God's agenda and ours is so different. His is framed from the position of eternity with perfect insight. Ours is framed from the position of time where we just want to be happy. We just want life to go nicely. And God has a totally different agenda. His, dis, his concern is to share his, his holiness with you forever. And as a result, he continually sees things differently than you and I do. And as a result, he doesn't always perform to expectations. Um, and that'll upset you. Listen to what the Bible says here in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. When, when you feel like God ought to be doing stuff and he's not, it gets you upset. You get grieved. Because sometimes things unfold in life that will bring grief to you. That they, they break your heart. Um, time suggests I'm just not going to tell you lots of them. But the reality is that I've been through a few. And perhaps one of the most important to me happened when I was a young school teacher bringing Jesus to my high school. See, during that process, um, I opened the bowling one afternoon for Wonga Park and burst a disc. And as a result, for a number of years, I suffered with a lot of back pain. I got up one morning, and by the way, this, by this, this time we were having a revival, was sweeping our school, and I was in the middle of it. I got up to go to school one morning and my back went into a spasm and I screamed and collapsed back in the bed and it was all over. That, um, this, I wasn't going to be able to push my body any further. They put me, took me off to Austin Hospital and over the next seven weeks um, kind of tried to work out how to fix my body. While I was lying in hospital, I got uh, enamored with Psalm 34. Uh, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his distress. And, 
I get, began to expect that I could see what God was doing. I mean, why am I lying here in hospital when I'm the center of revival in our high school? And I thought, I, I get it. I'm here because God's intending to do an amazing restorative miracle. And I could picture it. I could picture it. What would happen if I was to receive a miracle? If an angel was to turn up and rub my back and heal me? I could see myself standing at the Monday morning assembly with a thousand kids sitting in front of me. Telling what the lay angel of the Lord came in. His feathers were amazing. He rubbed my back. Kaboom! I was healed. I could see kids falling on the ground, weeping, teachers down on their knees, repenting, revival sweeping through Melbourne, jumps, the the Tasman comes to New Zealand, across to the USA. The entire world will get saved if I get a miracle. I could see it all. Problem is God never seemed to get the memo. And I began to expect I was going to get a miracle. And then not only that, but in Psalm 34, it says this, not a bone of his body will be broken. And then the surgeon came to me and said, we need to explain to you what what the kind of uh, operation we need to do. We're going to have to do a laminectomy. Well, he explained that to me. We're going to need to take some bone away from one of your vertebrae to get out that wounded disc and clean it up. And I thought, oh, there's the proof. The Bible says not a bone of his body will be broken. Well, that was about Jesus. Well, it could be about me too. Night before the operation, I thought, oh, the angel will come here. It's going to be amazing. Could hardly sleep. Woke up in the morning. No, the angel didn't come yet. Well, he'll come visit me on the way down. He'll probably be dressed like an attendant or something, you know. I won't even know. I was like, Got all the way down there. No, no angel. And when I awoke after the operation and I realized that no angel had turned up and, my body, and I hadn't been healed, I was so disappointed with God, I didn't have words for it. I just felt like, you, did, you, did you not see did I not explain this to you the possibilities it was so troublesome I couldn't read my bible for six months the thing was that the interesting thing was that um, the kids in the high school didn't know I was going through a crisis they just knew Al back home and so my home was a drop-in center on a Friday night and all the kids would turn up on Friday night they didn't know I I was so disappointed. I said, well, what's the point of reading the Bible? Isn't it interesting? That's exactly what happened in Psalm 73. Listen to what the Bible says. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Then he says to himself, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And that's how I felt. Well, what's the point of believing? What's the point of prayer? What's the point? I have washed my hands in innocence and all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. That's what I felt like. I wake up every morning and I'm disappointed again. And I don't know how to resolve it. And I just feel like you let me down. And I was expecting, and I could see how we could have saved millions of people. Did you, did you kid, get the memo? The one thing that stopped me from sinking completely out was that the kids kept turning up. They didn't know I was going through an emotional crisis. They didn't know I had a question. And so they'd turn up every Friday night and I had to make a decision. What do I do now? Well, I could get up and say to the kids, look, I just want to say you've been sharing with you about Jesus, but I'm really unhappy with Jesus at the moment. I just want you to know that don't keep coming on a Friday night because I feel like Jesus let me down and I'm going to let him down. Well, listen to what this man said. He said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Well, I had a whole bunch of kids turning up in my house. What am I going to say? Well, I made this decision. I'm not going to damage their faith because I don't know how to answer this question. 
And so I'd just get out my Bible and I'd turn somewhere in the Bible and I'd start preaching from it. And as I did, a little well in here would start to bubble and I'd start to love God all over again. And I'd start to love Jesus again and I'd, I'd share truth with them and they would love that. And then I'd close my Bible and the well would settle back down again and I would retreat into my cave like a wounded bear for another seven days until the kids turn up again next Friday night. Six months I could not read my Bible. Interesting thing is it went on for so long I ended up being so emotionally dry. I woke up one Sunday morning and I thought I am just so disconnected from God. I said to God in that early morning, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. And I went to church that afternoon and one of the pastors had just come back from a revival with a group of Malaysian students who were touching God. And he preached on revival. And I said, yeah, that's what I need. I need revival. And he had an altar call. Hey, I'll come out in the altar. And the next thing they turned it into an altar call to go to Bible college. Hang on, I'm coming out here for revival. I've got a wife and three children. I'm a high school teacher. I can't just go trundling off to Bible college. Next thing I know, an altar call to go to Bible college. And eventually I quit my job and I went into Bible college. And I realized I'm in serious trouble now. Because I am totally reliant on God and I'm not happy with him. That's not a good place to be. Well, Al, why didn't you figure it out? Well, listen to what this guy said. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. A complaint against God can bug the lights out, life out of you. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. I went off to Bible college. I quit my job. Now my wife and my three children are with me in Bible college and my entire future is in God's hands and I'm not happy with God. I don't even want to read the Bible. And I'm in Bible college. And one afternoon I went out in the paddocks and I said to God, we've got to sort this out. We've got to sort this out because the, the fact is I'm now totally reliant on you and if I keep going the way I feel, I'm in a lot of trouble because I'm not sure this is going to work. So somehow we've got to fix this. And I seemed to get a brainwave that day. I said to God, I'll tell you what we'll do. I've got a plan. I'm going to take my confusing experience and I'm going to put it in a box. And I'm going to mark it AFL, <coughs> awaiting further light, because I don't understand. But if I keep going the way I am, I feel like Billy Graham. If I can't believe the Bible, where am I going to be as an evangelist? If I can't say that God says or the Bible says and believe it, how am I ever going to share it with other people? I don't know what else to do. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to put it to one side and I'm going to invite you at some point to explain that to me. But I'm going to refuse to let this be the filter through which I see the rest of my life. And I want to tell you, I'm so glad I did that. Because over the, the past 40 years, I've experienced some amazing things. I've laid hands on blind people and had God open their eyes. I've cast out demons. I've seen so many extraordinary and wonderful things. And had I not done that, I could have been a Charles Templeton too. I could have been writing books somewhere about how God let me down. But I'm not. I'm here talking to you. You've got to find a way of dealing with it. That's how I dealt with that one. Now, how did this guy deal with it? Well, listen to what he says. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood 
their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. What was the resolution of his complaint? You're really complaining about my patience. That's what you're really complaining about. See, you're angry that I don't punish people quickly enough. How would you like me to start with you? How about we start with you, Al? What if every time you do the wrong thing, every time you, utter, you have an evil thought or an evil word or an evil action, what if I was to punish you? How would that work? Oh, no, Lord, please don't do that to me. Do that to really bad people. That's the ones. See, they need that. They need that, not me. Ah, so you're okay with me being patient with you, but you don't want me patient with other people. You see, Jesus told us a, a parable about this. He said a farmer one day went out and sowed wheat in his field, and he woke up in the morning, and there's weeds and wheat growing together. And um, the servant said to the master, what you, we, we should go out there and pull those weeds up. We ought to pull them up. And the farmer said, no, don't do that. Because in pulling up the weeds, you just might pull wheat up along with them. You just don't, you can't tell. You don't know what's in the seed. Let's be patient until harvest time. We'll sort it out then. I'm so glad that God didn't decide to settle the score with me when I was 18 years old and milking petrol out of other people's tanks and using the petrol to get to choir practice on a Thursday night. <laughs> I'm, God, God, I'm glad God didn't settle scores with me when I was stealing my lunch from the university cafeteria every day. Figured out a way to get my free lunch for free every day. I'm so glad God was patient with me because he said, let's not pull him up too soon. He might turn out to be okay. And uh, as a result, this guy began to realize, hang on, you know, I've been judging God for his patience. And every now and then what we need to do is back up and say, I may not be seeing this the way it is. Now, let me just tell you very briefly what I think about my situation. I think if God had healed me at that moment in my life, I would not be talking to you here tonight. I think as a young man, I would have been arrogant. I think I would have been headstrong. God knew I needed some training. He linked me up with Hal Oxley. Um, you don't know who Hal Oxley is, most of you, but I had a senior pastor who killed people in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the Second World War. When you've got a senior minister who's killed people in hand-to-hand -hand combat, you'll pay attention in staff meetings, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I had a man's man who was a colonel in the Second World War the youngest colonel in the Australian Imperial Forces, and for, for, from that, then until now, he has been my father. God knew that if he had, if he'd healed, I'm guarantee you, I would have gone out of there like a bull in a china shop. I would have ruined my marriage. I would have ruined God's purpose and plan. God saw how many apples there were in the seed. And so he steps back. You've got to realize that awaiting further light, don't judge God too quickly. He's really a lot smarter than you are. And he sees so much more than you do. And sometimes we don't know how to resolve our complaint, but you need to back up and realize something, that um, if Jesus didn't have any complaints, maybe I shouldn't either. And Jesus had none. Very valuable words spoken here this morning at the end of my message. You came up and said, you know, Jesus came to one of those quitting points too. Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus wasn't filled with complaints, even though the cross was awaiting him, because Jesus knows that 
God alone sees the number of apples there are in a seed. Don't be so quick to judge God. Just trust him. Listen to what the Bible says. Let me finish by saying this to you. What do you think God thinks about people who have complaints? Think God's angry? Yeah, you miserable coot. How do you come on, create the world and give you Jesus and you walk around with your miserable attitudes? I'll break your arms and legs if you're not careful. That's what I'll do. I'll fix you up. What do you think God thinks about people who have complaints? He feels for you. He understands that you in time struggle to understand as time and eternity collide, you don't know quite how to fix it all. But listen to what God thinks. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Nevertheless, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail me, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. I'm a survivor of one complaint. Tonight I want to encourage you. Don't hide your complaints. They'll poison your soul. Expose them to, to God and to expose them to the Word. Sometimes expose them to people you can trust with who've got spiritual maturity. Because resolving your complaint will strengthen your heart. It did for this man. It changed his life. I'm a survivor of my complaint. I'm still standing. I'm still living in the grace and the kindness of God. And one day I will experience the greatest of all miracles, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. And in that moment, all my questions will be answered. If they don't get answered before then, I can live with that. Tonight, what's yours? What's the burr under your saddle? Tonight, I'll invite you uh, to just lift off the saddle, pull out your little burr, and say to the Lord, this troubles me. I just need to own it. I need to own it. And say, God, this is my prayer. Um, help me to know how to handle it. Corrie Ten Boom said this faith is trusting God when life has given you a reason not to you'll never know you trust God until life has given you a reason not to and you make a decision if God is like Jesus he's worthy of my confidence father tonight I pray for my friends in this place I pray over them and for them let your kingdom come, let your will be done in this house. I pray for those who came in here tonight, and if they were really honest, they would say, you know what, I have a complaint, and I've never been sure what to do with it. This is my prayer, that tonight they'll face the courage, they'll find the courage to be honest, and then they'll find the courage to trust you nonetheless. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. If you, come, if you were honest enough, I want everyone to bow their heads for just one moment. Just bow your head. If you were really honest, who came in tonight and you'd be honest enough to say, I, I do carry a bit of a burr, a little complaint under my saddle, and I, I just love the Lord to heal me of that. Be honest. That's the way. I just see hands there. 
Confession is so good, just to own it. What you will not acknowledge, you can never change. But the moment you acknowledge it, hope opens a door. Father, you see those hands and you know the story. I give you thanks that you love these people. You hold them by your, their right hand. You are guiding them with your counsel. Afterwards, you will receive them to glory. I pray tonight, before they leave, something in their heart would say, Father, I will trust you. I will lean on you in Jesus' name. Amen.